What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Inking Out Loud. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today we're going to be wrapping up the ninth volume of The Wheel of Time, Winter's Heart. So, without much further ado, take it away, Drew. Recap the ending of this book. Yeah, so where we left off last time, uh, we were back with Matt in Ebudar, where he is sort of getting his bearings again after recovering from his injury when the Shanchan attacked. Uh, he's dealing with Satal Anan and Jolene and Aludra and Tuan and Tylin and all the women in his life. Uh, but he basically decides, you know, he owes Teslin because she warned him, uh, you know, about Elida. And he's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to rescue her. Uh, I'm going to rescue Jolene, I'm going to get her out of Ebudar, and uh, he kind of gets recruited as well by Aginan and Bail Doman, who are also trying to get out of Ebudar because they realize they're in some, uh, some, some trouble. You're in a predicament, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and it all comes together. Matt frees the Athan, Mier, <laughs> Damane, and gets, you know, uh, Edizina, Jolene, and Teslin you know, out along with uh, three Suldam, uh, including Bethamin, and uh, on the way out, he runs into Tuan, and he is forced to kidnap her, essentially, and also inadvertently starts to marry her. Uh, <laughs> and then meanwhile, back with Rand, he is in Farmatting, where he's kind of playing a game of cat and mouse with the renegade Ashaman who tried to kill him at the end of Path of Daggers. And he dispatches some of them. Pat and Fane dispatches more of them. Uh, Rand gets briefly imprisoned again before Cadswain gets him out. Rand takes Cadswain and all of her uh, Aes Sedai and Ashaman that she brought with. And they go to Shadar Logoth and cleanse Saedin. And that's where the book ends. Yeah, that's where the book ends. Um, and to have where the episode begins, um, normally at this point I'd have a whole bunch of style points to discuss, but I'm going to be honest and say for that this week, for the first time, I actually didn't write anything down about style. Or uh, if I did, it was it, there, it, my points are so closely related to character points that I just included all of my style points for this, for this week pretty much in my uh, character section. So um, oh, I, I also I, have a I bit about have... style in my closing. Sorry, go ahead. I do have one kind of style point that I want to talk about, and that is that final chapter with the Choidan call and yeah. how, um, once again, we see Robert Jordan using point of view to such great effect where he's jumping around in these short little segments, uh, going from character to character, showing us different you know, theaters of this ongoing conflict around Rand, where you know, it would be so easy to try as an author to write that from Rand's point of view but I don't think it would be as effective as what Robert Jordan did where he had like what was the number like 10 or 11 different points of view in one chapter oh I'm uh, sure it was where, even more than that you know we got we got Demandred we have uh Sindane we have Moradin. Magedian, we have uh um uh oh my gosh uh Osangar uh you know we have <laughs> We have Slash Woman, of course, you yep. know, Eben Hopwell, you know, we, we got people on both sides of this conflict, just, you know, all this craziness going on. And that sort of staccato point of view structure combined with the, uh, the nature of the conflict where it's all one power stuff, 
you know, it makes for this really hectic, really tense, climactic scene. And I loved that. Yeah, I'm going to definitely be elaborating a lot on that for my closing thoughts for today. Um, yeah. <laughs> as well as with my, uh, my beer selection for today. But um, I'm kind of excited Ooh. to dive into our characters. Uh, is there anything else style, you know, style-worthy that you want to discuss right now? Or are you ready to uh, hike up our socks and get, get stepping? Yeah, let's, uh, let's kick it off with characters. Okay, so Rand, right, naturally. Good, uh, good, good place to start. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we get an ominous moment for Rand's outlook on the future in this half of this book. Uh, the revelation from Min that Olivia is somehow going to help Rand die. Uh, not a very positive thing to hear for somebody who's <laughs> rapidly descending into badness already. Um, but another big, a big moment for Rand, though, that I, I was cheering for him at this point in the book was how thoroughly satisfying it was to watch him put Alana in her place, finally. You know? Yeah. I've now got this massive hatred for Alana, and this hatred that I really don't recall having previously, at least not to this extent that I'm starting to hate her now. Like, she tried to slap Rand, to slap yeah. him for the offense of letting someone else bond him. Like, this might be the single yeah. most irrational, hypocritical word or action that we ever get from any character at any point <laughs> in the entirety of the series. And I'm <laughs> looking directly at you, Egwene, including Egwene. Like, in, in that moment, this time, a small part of me wished that Rand could just bail fire her ass. It was beyond <laughs> maddening, listening to that twisted perversion of anything resembling logic. I just wrote down... Two thumbs, <clears throat> pardon me, two thumbs way down and one middle finger way up for Alana. <laughs> what about you, dude? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have as visceral a reaction to Alana as you do, but that particular scene was infuriating when she infuriating, you know, yeah. storms in. And, I mean, she's just so unstable at this point. You know, we see how emotionally volatile she is going into Ebudar, you know, how impatient, how, like... Uh, Impetuous. Like it almost seems like for her, for her mental Naive. stability, she needs to be with Rand, and it's like <coughs> it's so ridiculous that that's the case for her. This is a woman who doesn't know Rand at all. She's met him like you know just a couple of times. Mm -hmm. The first time she ever met him, she just like you know mind raped him against him. his will. Like, yeah, it's and and yet she treats the bond and treats him as something very familiar and something very intimate like as if she knows him and she does not know him and and it is this like presumptuous thing that is emblematic of a lot of Aes Sedai in this series there, yeah. there's just a, an inherent presumption to how so many Aes Sedai uh, interact with the world around them and this I think is like the peak of that yeah, no, definitely. And, and actually following up on that, I do want to ask one question that just occurred to me while you were talking there, Drew. I want to know how exactly it was that this woman, Alana Mosvani, somehow managed to pass the test for the shawl. Yeah. How did uh, she manage that? There, That is like a really good question. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that we see other Aes Sedai over the course of the series lose their composure and like lose their nerve and I think that's really what happened with her I think if we had seen her you know before this a lot more before you know she lost a warder and before she bonded Rand and like 
she became very unstable over the course of the series, and I think if we saw her, say, like, five years earlier, she would have seemed like a very different No, I would say that she actually started out unstable. She just got more and more so as she went along. I mean, the first time we met her was in the Two Rivers, I think, from Perrin's point of view. Yeah, and that was after her warder died. Okay, I suppose. I suppose there's some leeway to be granted for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure there was always, like, a little bit of this, like, fire in her. Oh, yeah, she's described uh, that It was way. something that she could handle, and after Owen dies, she really loses that grip on herself. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, and I think it's it's a similar thing to what happens with Shimarin, uh in in a couple of books here. The, uh, the Aes Sedai, okay, okay. whom uh, Elida makes an example of. Yeah. And, um, you know, she breaks her nerve, and she becomes just like a total like weeping, you know, ineffectual person. And I'm not saying that Alana is quite at that level, but I think she did lose her nerve. She she lost her ability to maintain her composure after Owen was killed, and she became even more unstable when she bonded Rand. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and, and I'm really cognizant of the fact that right now we've... I, I started this, you know, talking about Rand, but we ended up going on a tangent about Alana. I kind of want to bring it back to Rand here. And say mm-hmm. that uh, another really cool moment for Rand, um, and for us as a reader, was finally starting to see him master this this art of blending in with the crowd, as we saw him do in Farmatting. Um, oh, it, yeah. it, it's cool to consider like what the reaction of those others would be in that crowd, if the street vendor, for example, selling these greasy-ass meat pies, realized that the tall, black-haired man in front of him juggling one from hand to hand was actually Randall Thor, the Dragon Reborn. He who comes yeah. with the dawn, Shadow Killer, the Kuramor, Champion of the Light, and Lord of the Morning. This blissful ignorance that they all have. This was just mm, so perfect, man. Yeah, and uh, totally unrelated, or mostly unrelated. For some reason, that particular moment, like on uh, Blue Carp Street, when Rand buys the meat pie, and he's like juggling it, and like just the description of that has always stuck in my head yes yes i remember there was such again we you just use this word and i'll I'll use it again visceral this is this moment i have from my childhood of reading that scene and just how surreal it was to see rand actually like you just said that description of him on a word-by-word basis juggling it from hand to hand and like that you know jordan makes makes care to describe the grease going down his chin right just kind of humanizes the dragon reborn in a way that we really haven't seen up to this point it was it was really well done yeah but, you know, that's it kind of serves as a little bit of a counterpoint to the other stuff that he does in yeah. Farmatting. Because it's Farmatting by nature has to, like, bring Rand down to, like, a more normal level because he can't channel there. Uh, but even still, everything he does is of such import and of such just an extraordinary nature. Uh, you know, between dealing with Fane and his illusions and dueling, you know, multiple of the renegade Ashaman in the alley and uh, and then being arrested and locked in a box again. You know, th- that's mm. a that's a major, major moment for Rand where it shows us just how uh, unstable he is and how vulnerable mentally and emotionally he is since Dumai's well. Yeah, and it's an often overlooked part, I think, in the development of the character that is Randall Thor, especially going along these path of this uh, man that I'm referring to this whole time as Dark Rand, you know. First uh-huh. how... Sorry, go ahead. Or you said, uh-huh. I, just, I thought you said, uh. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, but like we have this this increasing mantra throughout the series that at first he has to become as hard as stone, and then he has to become as hard as steel, and now after this he has to be Quandiar. Yep. Right. It's just yep. like oh man, it's worse and worse as it goes along. But I also want to discuss this whole blue carp street sequence. I wanted to ask you, Drew, what was it like your first time reading this scene as a young man? What was your impression? So I actually remember reading this scene the first time pretty vividly. Yeah. I was like on the edge of my seat the whole time. <laughs> I, uh, I, as soon as I knew that Torum Riotin was involved, I was like, oh yes, I need to see him get his comeuppance. Oh. Like I, I hated Torum Riotin. Really, it ever was Torum Riotin that did it for you. Ever since the like the friendly duel, you know, with the practice swords. Yes, the yes. Rebel. How about some sport, camp. brother? And when the bubble of evil hit and. Rand turns to look and see if he can save this Aes Sedai who's being like you know ripped apart by the fog and Torm Riotin has this kind of dirty blow and mm. hits Rand in the side right over his like you know previous wounds like I always just saw Torm Riotin as this like underhanded scummy like, <laughs> and then of course when the fact that he's, he's hanging around with Pat and Finn, yeah exactly like, we found that out actually beforehand worse. didn't we yeah, yeah. Well, because right, he's immediately in, beforehand. He's in the he's camp. in the tent. Yeah, yeah. He's in the tent right there. Mm, yeah. Rand like makes eye contact with him, uh, but but that in the aftermath, Riotin went with Pat and Fane, and we see him like in this scene where he's like a shell of himself, or he's like dirty and unkempt, and even though he's this lord, you know, this powerful lord, and uh, and then. The land just wrecks him as as he deserves. Oh, I wouldn't say land wrecks him. I mean, Torm Riotin was a blade master, and as we see, he did manage to bloody our land Mandragoran. I wouldn't yeah, say that he, he wrecks that land wrecks so, him. So he I'm gonna I'm gonna point own. this out with Lan. Lan gets bloodied a lot. Right. Most of the blade master rarely we in a see him in, he takes wounds. Yeah, it's usually against several Trollocs and or Murdral at the same time. Not again. Not in a one on one. No, every time we see him fight a Blade Master, he is bloodied. Okay, well I guess Ryan you can say that him. anybody who qualifies for Blade Master him, demand red bloodies him. Yeah, but I mean that's because they are also Blade Masters, which means like they're they're a lot. I mean, the, the, Lan is the best without question. Yeah, oh, but yeah, to he qualify is. for Blade Master, you have to be on his level at least so to say that that Torum that he wrecked Torum Riotin well, I'd say him. they were only in there for like a couple of minutes that's all it like, takes that was a very quick that's all it takes that was a very quick duel yeah, yeah. I bet you Rand's like, duel with Turak was about the same I don't know uh, see I didn't get that impression with Rand and certainly not with like Galad and Valda for instance oh Galad and Valda but, oh I can't wait till we get to discuss that one in depth oof yeah. But but yeah, like it was it was just great to see Riotin finally go down. Get his come up and I, I do remember being frustrated that Fane got away. Mm. Oh my god, know, so like, much agreement. Mm -hmm. Although this was also a scene when I realized kind of thinking back, uh the first time through where I was like, Oh, Fane okay, so the flies and that whole thing in the village, that was Fane. What back this, in the Great Hunt? This made you think of that. Because in this scene, Rand walks in, and there's another illusion, another trap, based around an illusion. Hold on, what is this illusion? The bodies? When Rand and, when Rand and yeah. uh, Land drop in, yeah. the door opens, and like the two Ashaman walk in. 
but they, that's an illusion. The, their bodies are actually dead and like rotting from the Shatter Logoth taint right over in the corner. Yeah, I remember seeing the description of the bodies right away. I don't remember the illusion of the two men. I thought that was actually real. Of course, then again, they would have been able to... No, 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 never mind, actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. okay, I'm just realizing that I was not following along the scene very well. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, let me see if I can find the... No, I, I totally believe you. Uh, the description, because because it, it is striking. Um, we know that he I killed. Remember, Kisman in the streets. Yeah. Uh, all right. But the last two that Rand had yet to kill were in the note that Fane left, and those were the two bodies that Rand and Lane discovered as they dropped down from the ceiling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they find them first, and that's like why Rand manages to, you know. Like, to get around I guess, it. Yeah, no, I guess why that confuses me is the fact that I assumed the flies in the vision in uh, the trap in the Great Hunt were real, because Rand can, like, feel them, like, crawling into his nose and crawling down his mouth and into his lungs and shit like that. Yeah, so it's... Pat and Fane is, like, fighting Rand already, and Fane, like, reaches out a hand. Um, what? He casts an uh, illusion like a light weaver? Yeah, so... The, the line is here, like, I want to know who's killing him, Fane whined petulantly. He was glaring straight at Rand, but seemed to be talking to himself. I want him to know, but if he's dead, then he will stop wanting my dreams. Yes, he will stop him. Or, yes, he will stop then. With a smile, he raised his free hand. Torval and Gedwin came up the stairs with their cloaks over their arms. I say we aren't going near him until I know oh. where the others are, Gedwin growled. The Mihail will kill us if... Without see, thought, Rand twisted his wrists in cutting the wind and immediately followed with unfolding the fan. The illusion of dead men come back to life vanished, and Fane leapt back with a shriek. Okay, okay, see, see, for some reason where my brain got off the highway there was that fan raise, uh, fan, Fane raising his hand there was just to stab Rand with a dagger, and those two happened to come up at the wrong time, and Rand just, like, unfolds the fan and beheads the both of them. I didn't stop to think that their two bodies are obviously already dead upstairs. Mm -hmm. I never yeah. stopped to consider that. I thought I was just like, oh yeah, maybe there's two more Ashaman in this city that need to be killed, that need to get got. But no, you're right. I, I don't know why, after all this time and reading this as, as many times as I have, I haven't actually realized that that was an illusion. Interesting. That might have been almost yeah. like a lore-worthy... No, actually, it's not a lore-worthy segment, because I was just being a dumbass and not reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, it does use the word illusion. Yeah, right? and, and we are still uh, we're still on our Rand discussion, aren't we? I actually have my impressions yeah. about this whole blue carp sequence to get out of the way as well. Okay, oh, sorry. yeah, go for it. I just had to burp there for a bit, because this beer is delicious. So, for me, this whole blue carp street sequence, it, was a, it, it stood out to me because it ended up later defining a word that I came to learn. And that learn, <laughs> and that learn, and that word is surreal. When I first heard a definition for the word surreal, I was like 7th or 8th grade, I was like 11 or 12 years old, and my immediate thought was like, oh, okay, so Rand didn't land on the rooftops of Farmatting. That was surreal. You know, what a roller coaster of a ride that this chapter was. Like, the way Jordan styles this entire chapter in this sort of detached, cold, sort of third person as these two guys physically hunt down blacklisted Ashaman, you know, running into mm -hmm. Fane, land dueling Torm Riotin, ran fending off Fane, and looking as if he finally might get to finish this job that had been building up for so long. It felt like what was going to be the height of the novel. And then came the cleansing. Yep. Right? Yep. So, yeah, and, and that pretty much wraps up all of my Rand points for now, but I'll have a ton going forward, I promise. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to stick with the uh, 
the formatting group here. Okay. And I want to talk just briefly about Kedzwein and Varen. Um, because there is a very interesting scene in this section. Yes. Where we see yes. Varen preparing to poison Kedzwein. I have a miscellaneous point about this exact scene. I'm glad you're bringing it up now, though. Yeah. It, it's, you know, in retrospect, like, I re again, I remember reading it the first time and being so confused about what Varen's deal was. But in retrospect, it seems so obvious here. Like, of course, Varen was prepared to kill Cadswain because she thought Cadswain was possibly black, and that she thought Cadswain was working against Rand. But when she found out that Cadswain was working to teach Rand laughter and tears again, and had this like pact with Soralia, you know, like to humanize Rand again, uh, she's like, okay, no. She's doing the right thing. I'm not going to kill her. Yeah, she Cadswain won over Varen just like she won over me with that idea. <laughs> the, the idea to teach the Dragon Reborn laughter in tears. It was something like I, like I mentioned before. It came so far out of left field as a theme for this book and the development of the character that is Randall Thor. It, it's so unexpected that I, and, and so just like seemingly brilliant at the time that I was immediately on board and I can see why it immediately uh, persuaded Varen as well. And on the, on the subject of this exact scene, you know, that, that little vial that she tucked away, that was a little detail that I'm not sure I'm really not sure how I didn't notice beforehand, because I didn't notice beforehand. But slipping away that little vial after serving the tea to Catswain, especially considering how many times I've read this scene, that line that Varen has that ends this scene, I've read so many times. The, do you take honey? I can never remember. Yeah. Like, that's just for some reason or other, and I can't explain why, that line as a Varen line sticks out to me so much, and for some reason that I can't fathom. I never noticed the little detail of the vial she tucked away before asking that question. And now, knowing what I know with the context that I currently have, it was uh, it was pretty neat. And I hurriedly whipped yeah. out my phone to write that point down as soon as I noticed it. Yeah, and so that line as well is another one of these signifiers that I think we're supposed to walk away with the impression that uh, with, with our knowledge of Varen's ultimate plotline here, character arc, is that that was a lie. She did know. And she's, you know... She knows uh, about the honey preference? Yeah. Oh, yeah, interesting. That was just the impression that I got on rereads. That was interesting. Like, she, that was just her putting up a pretense of, you know, being scatterbrained as she does and lying and, and using it as an excuse to... Um, Dilly dally over the tea. Ah, okay. The, the dilly dally makes it, yeah, strike home a little, a little more. I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. Any? Who do we want to jump onto next? Should we jump into Matt? I mean, I think we we should. He's the only other like really major yeah uh, character that I have points about. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let's do it. I only have two points about Matt. Um. I want to say that the entire escape from Ebudar sequence was just so tragically amusing. From Matt's point of view, mm -hmm. now of course he laid down re like a reasonable, surprisingly clever plan of escape, and of course, as a Tavir, and it just all goes horribly wrong in all the right ways. I thought it was pretty cool, man. What about you? Yeah, I absolutely adore the Matt sequence in this book, uh, and a big part of it is I love. It really starts around here and goes forward through like Knife of Dreams, there's this section of the series where we get a lot of scenes of other people 
realizing how competent Matt is. And we get these these little bits with Aegeanin and Domon in this book, and we're going to see more with like Seleucia and Tuon in the next couple books. And while it is a lot of fun to be in Matt's head, I almost feel like it's more fun when we are in somebody else's head watching Matt. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Um, you know, I also wanted to ask how heartbreaking it was to read the scene where Matt is tying up a willing Tylan so that he can flee the city. You know, like even for those who are uh, not I fans. I was not heartbroken Yeah, okay, at all. see, that's where I'm going next with this. Even for those who are not fans of the Queen of Altara, it's just knowing what this memory is going to do to Matt in the future. That's what, that's what really makes it hit hard for me, you know. It's still it's still tough to get through for that reason. This this was one one point and you know goes into a little bit into the next book when Matt gets the news of Tylen. Mm-hmm. I never understood like from the get go. I never understood why Matt was so sad about it. I of course, like, because he feels she, responsible. She abused you. He like, tied her up, so he feels responsible. You. It's not that he really yeah, cared about her so much. It's that he just well, feels like he left a woman helpless mm, against that see, beast. I think. I think they're really, you know, I'll, now I'll leave that point for Crosshairs of Twilight. Yeah, I mean, obviously, even if she had, like, 50 but, defenders with her at the moment, like, she still would have died. Oh, but yeah, he's still, Matt, no Matt Cawthon being Matt Cawthon, of course, leaving her tied up, is going to, you know, punish himself emotionally for what he assumes he did yeah. to Tylen. But, I mean, to me, the greater emotional impact in these chapters was... Matt's interaction with the Windfinders, and okay. you know his just his innate goodness, where he mm-hmm. he chooses to free them, even though he knows that by doing so he could be screwing himself over and screwing you know like like he, he screwing up his plans, like he he just cannot stand by and let this. You know this abuse. I think it's a counterpoint to what's happening with Tylen, and Matt is probably not like conscious of how uh, how he's sort of acting in opposition to the way Tylen treated him, but he is. Hmm. Yeah. He he is being the decent person and treating people who are being abused and held in captivity with decency and respect and with like generosity whereas everything about his relationship with Tylen is selfishly motivated on Tylen's part yeah well that's why we love him and that's why Matt is a main yeah. character in the wheel of time because innately he is yeah. good yeah and that's and why I, he's one I of my just favorites love it. It, like i i really love these bat chapters in winter's heart mm. Yeah, that wraps uh, wraps up everything I have to say about Matt for now. I'm sure I'm going to have a lot more in Crossroads of Twilight and Knife of Dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do still have Nynaeve and Elaine left to discuss as far as my character points go. Do you have a okay. preferential starting point? Uh, let's start with Elaine. Elaine, uh, we okay. We didn't get a lot of her in this section, but we did have a couple of really fun chapters. Yeah, no, we definitely um, did. Uh, I, I always enjoy reading the... Uh, to surprise kings and queens, you know, where she goes out to the Borderlander mm-hmm. camp and, and there's all of this, like, tension in the air and they're, like, finding out, oh, there are 13 Aes Sedai in the camp and, like, 
and the Borderlanders are trying to hide the fact that the Aes Sedai are there, and Elaine's like, I'm not meeting with you as the Queen of Andor or even the daughter heir, I'm meeting with you as an Aes Sedai and kind of throwing her weight around. And I think that's a character <laughs> move that she would not have been able to do did she not have the experiences in Ebu Dar where she had that that recognition and respect from the other Aes Sedai where she could finally like publicly move around as a real Aes Sedai, you know? Where where we we get that um, you know we talked about the two scenes in in a crown of swords where she gets her due from from the kinswoman Merrill and, and oh then first she the eyes and we get and, that and, and, yeah and, and then, then the we get women. that line I fear you must address yourself to Elaine's <laughs> die like so much win and, yeah and so that's that was sort of like a character growth moment that builds the foundation and allows Elaine to go out and have the confidence to meet with four kings and queens in an army of 200,000 soldiers. Yeah. You know, as an Aes Sedai and not as the daughter heir of Andor. Yeah. Or the, you know, presumptuous uh, queen of Andor. Yeah. Like, you know, she's, she's doing it independently of her birthright political station. She got to flex. That's what she got. <laughs> um, it's not so much a point about Elaine as it was just something uh, revealed during her viewpoint, something you just briefly touched on there, Drew. But I hadn't before realized just how huge this massed armies of the Borderlanders were. Like you just said, yeah. over 200,000 soldiers from, like, what, is it four nations? Yep. Shinar, Arfel, Kandor, and Saldea, right? Yeah. <clears throat> like, what so an intimidating front. We had a discussion, I don't remember which episode it was, but it was earlier, like, I Shadow say Rising or Fires of Heaven. Fires of Heaven Part 3. About the this place size this day? of the Shinaran army oh, at Tarwin's Gap. Oh, yeah, and I know. How, and how that must have been, like, about 100,000 Shinarans. I, th I think that was like, in Eye of the World Part 2. There. And, no, well, so we talked about it later. No, I think we talked about it in Eye of the World Part 2, and I realize it happened at the end of Eye of the World, but I think I brought it up in... The Eye of the World Part no. 2, because you said something I mean, about 100,000 soldiers, and I was like, what? I think no. it was Fires of Heaven, because we were talking about how the oh, okay. Kyrian was Ooh, the first like, point. large scale army, like like six figure army. No, that's And that's, I was like, no, Tarwin's yep. Gap, we saw like 100,000 Shinarns, because they lost that's, a lot there. And that's they still actually ringing about yeah. soldiers to send south in this. Like, it, this, this is like a, a pretty substantial, you know, uh, stripping of the might of the borderlands where you know you know we we'll see it a little more later in like towers of midnight when when we get to maradon and how just how few soldiers they left behind uh across the borderlands which was you know a risky move it definitely was and it feels a little irresponsible honestly knowing what we know about the borderlanders and how much they have defended the border of the blight i just mm -hmm. i don't know all of this for what boils down to a question ultimately is that's what it boils down to um, as far as we're, we're talking about Elaine here I still have a couple small points about Elaine uh, that I just wanted to mention very briefly I, I was I was a little disappointed and I'm still am I still am a little disappointed that we don't get to see the actual moment where Elaine learns that she's going to be a mother like I think that would have been out of all characters in this series particularly magical I think like from the point of Elaine right 
That's a good point. I, I think that's, you know, it's not something I've really thought about before, but I, I agree with you. I think that would have been a really, How heartwarming would that like have been touching moment to, to see Elaine learn, yeah, that she's going to bear Rand's children. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, yeah, we, I, I would have liked that. That's we a good get, point. We get this disturbing, disturbing context, though, on these scenes to flip that, you know, on the flip side, to see her openly flirting with Doylin Millar. Like, oh, I, uh, yeah. I, I can see where she comes from, and the logic that she puts forth, <sighs> it's hard to dispute. She doesn't want anyone to know that these are Rand's babies, they're going to be targets, yada yada. Makes sense, mm-hmm. but objectively speaking, horrifying. Yuck. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. Nasty. So, that wraps up my points on uh, Elaine. Yeah, so my last Elaine point, though, was uh, to this theme of, like, you know, her confidence building and her... Uh, kind of power move to go out and deal with the rulers as Elaine Sedai of the Green Aja and like hitting this sort of like political maneuvering high and coming back and finding out there are four armies approaching <laughs> Camelin were about to be besieged. And, and like, in <laughs> all of that, Elaine sees an opportunity yeah. yeah, and and that is the last of the Elaine that we get in this book, and I think this is a um, a trend that's growing where Robert Jordan likes in this segment of the series likes building us up to a point where he's like, all right, some some real carnage is going to go down, and then cutting away for the rest of the book. So like, Path of Daggers. We build up to, like, the gateway opened and the armies are going through to besiege Tarvalon. And then, book's over. And then here, Elaine, you know, we build up to all of her political maneuvering and she gets back to Camelon, like, boom, we're getting besieged. No more Elaine for the rest of the book. Like, yeah. It's, uh, it's something that I could see people getting very frustrated with. And I remember, I wouldn't quite call it frustration, but I remember being, like, anxious about it right like just wanting to know more wanting so badly to find out what's going to happen uh but as i'm reading through this time you know of course i don't have to wait between books and i'm like digging in more you know performing more of like a literary analysis on things i really appreciate this literary device that robert jordan is using like it, it is a cliffhanger but it's a very particular right. kind of cliffhanger. Now, and you know, I I enjoy it. Would it have been as frustrating as you put it originally before you had, you know, the appreciation for it in the context? Would it have been as frustrating if it had been put, for example, closer to the end of the narrative rather than like <clears throat> what is it? Like 6, 7, 8 chapters at least before the actual very very end. So you you leave off at this point thinking, "Okay, we we might get a little more from Elaine." But then again, you see that everything going forward is Matt Rand, right? Like, if this had been, like, the second last chapter, the third last chapter, would it have, like, you? would you have felt a little more closure, at least, for this part of the book? Uh, possibly, yeah. Perhaps? I see that. I mean, because, mm-hmm. so that chapter is, that's chapter 27, so we've got Oh, another... 27? I would have figured, like, 23, 24. Yeah. Oh, I'm already there off, were, then. There were eight more chapters after... Oh, oh I nailed it, then. To surprise queens and kings. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and then I, I guess, you know, maybe this goes back to a style point. Uh, there is no epilogue in this book. Yeah. Uh, it just ends with with the Troiden call. Yeah. 
um, and and it uh, once again has this like little little bit at the end that <laughs> I always like to draw back to the myths in Blade of Taishal. Right. Where he pulls where, out into this omniscient sort of second person almost. Exactly. Like, it, it starts with night fell on the hilltop. The wind blew dust across the fragments of what had once been a Turangrail. Below lay the tomb of Shadar Logoth, open to give the world hope. And on distant Tremalking, the word began to spread that the time of illusions was at an end. Hmm. Like, Chills. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so to your point, though, with, like, Elaine... I wouldn't say there was like that much of an issue. I think maybe it would have been alleviated a little bit had she had a chapter closer to the end of the book, but it's those eight chapters after her last chapter are so great <laughs> that you kind of just forget about it. Yeah, you do. Like you could just get sucked right back into Matt and Ebudar and the escape and then right into Rand and Far Matting and, and the cleansing. And so well, Yeah. Yeah, and and knowing what we do now about how like there's not just like a battle about to happen at Camelin, that it is going to be a siege for you know a few weeks. You know, if if Robert Jordan had chosen to maybe like have some sparking, inciting incident that resulted in a pitched battle at Camelin, I could have seen like another. Like climactic chapter in this book for Elaine, you know, add another sure, whatever, sure, five six thousand words to this book, but I can't, I can't really blame him for what he did because Elaine's character arc uh, wasn't really, um, you know, wasn't really prepared for her to assume the throne quite yet. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. Um, I, I want to briefly talk about Nynaeve. I just have one thing I want to highlight with Nynaeve and her okay. points of view from this Blue Carp Street sequence. I want to say I love Nynaeve. I love how her yeah. loyalty is to Rand. She never gives us a reason to think otherwise. I think all of our other characters at this point, they have duties that they make clear are of near or equal importance to their loyalty to Randall Thor. Like, like, don't even get me started on Perrin. Oh, my God. But the entire <laughs> Blue Carp Street sequence shows that Nynaeve is willing to listen to Rand, occasionally to take an order, and to do both without resenting him for it. Like, she doesn't mm -hmm. seem to think like the others do, that her status as a person is somehow in jeopardy because she's taking orders from a walking penis. You know, she's, she's careful, <laughs> she's thoughtful, she's free from anything even resembling guile or duplicity. Like, she just, she clearly goes along with a plan because she trusts him. And I just, yeah. I just want to say I love Nynaeve now. I love her. Yeah, all of her decision-making in this book is, is just a, a case in point of her loyalty to Rand and to yep. the two rivers and her faith people. in Rand. Like it's, yes. it's her decision to just say, you know, yeah, like you need me more than Elaine does. I'm gonna just leave Elaine. And in some ways, she fe she feels like the least Aes Sedai in out of all Aes Sedai yeah. for that reason. And that's driven home when we see her dealing with Cadswain in this, where we know that like we know that Nynaeve is uh, deserving of the title Aes Sedai even if she doesn't align, uh, you know, sort of 
like morally, maybe not morally, she doesn't align with the Aes Sedai mentality. And Cadzwain also doesn't. So it's, it's this weird, like, they're both part of this institution, but they're both outliers, you know, and like, and so they strike sparks because they're both outliers. And, and we have once again, this like need for Nynaeve to earn respect from an Aes Sedai that Elaine has already achieved. Now Nynaeve has to do that. But she has to do it with Cadzwain, who's like yeah. way, way more difficult to handle than Merrill or, you know, Carianne or Adelius and Van Deen. Like it's uh it's a totally different animal, but it's an animal that Nynaeve can handle. And it really says something about the character of Cadswain that Nynaeve has to struggle just as hard or harder to to earn the respect of Cadswain than Elaine had to work in Crown of Swords to earn the respect of all of those various Aes Sedai combined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it makes sense with Cadswain knowing what we do, what we learn about her in this book, like how she earned the Peralis net, you know, her ornaments, how, like, she had this non-traditional training period and, you know, very, very difficult, harder than what the White Tower does, and really idiosyncratic. And so Nynaeve, of course, Cadzwain sees her potential, and so she's going to treat Nynaeve the way she was treated by Norla. Mm. Like, uh, pushing Nynaeve. I would love to see more of Norla. Yeah, I, I will say... <laughs> uh, Excellent spin-off material. The very first... The very first... Uh, entry in the companion that I looked up was Norla. Really? When that came out. Awesome. And I was disappointed in, in how little yeah. was in there. <laughs> I think I remember I yeah, being a, little, a little disappointed in that same. Um, so that wraps up the, all of my character style points, or uh, character points to discuss. I do have a few miscellaneous points, and we do have some questions from listeners to get to as well. Do you want to dive into those? Do you have any uh, actual any lore segment, or should we do that after? So I don't really have much, like lore stuff uh this is a pretty straightforward you know segment uh like the you know everything's pretty much explained in the books like in the book itself for this so i didn't have anything that leapt out at me when mm. i was reading through okay. i was like oh i really this is a good thing for me to like explain okay so I'm just going to go through my miscellaneous impressions and then we're going to get to the two listener questions that we have plus the one questioner that i have sound good okay okay so, uh, starting off um, as a casual observation, Harin Din Togara two wins. <laughs> what a petulant little child! Holy shit, she is annoying. Yeah, man, the sea folk are just a, a chore. <laughs> yeah, which which one of the Aes Sedai like were we getting like uh, her from? Like, whose point of view were we in when we were getting all of that whining from Harin? I'm sorry, say that again? Like, whose point of view were we in when Harin was doing her thing and bitching at her finest? It was one of the Aes Sedai that we were in one of the Aes Sedai's heads, I think, at that point. When they're going into Farmatic? Yes, and Harin is whining about Cad Swain treating it's, her uh, like a... It's Shalon, her sister. Oh. The Windfinder. Oh, I thought it was an Aes Sedai. It was actually one of the Sea Folk. Yeah. Oh, um, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, okay. when they're going into... It's like... 
man. Oh, yeah, Shalon's right. The... You know, that reminds me. Okay, I remember now because it sounded obviously a lot like Sanderson's Shalon. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. S H A L O N instead mm-hmm. of. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, the way Sanderson yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly winning Wheel of Time phrase, though, that stuck out to me this time. I don't recall actually reading it before, but it's, you know. It, it, it made me chuckle a little bit this time. Women are a maze through briars in the night, and even they do not know the way. <laughs> you know, in terms of sheer aesthetic alone, that was an awesome line. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily saying I agree with it. I'm just saying that yeah. it stands out, right? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I would agree with that. There are, <laughs> there are a lot of like these little you know turns of phrase that he... like. Uh, Oh man, what's he's, the word I'm looking for? He's you got know, a flair uh, for not it. Not like fables, but you know, just like little like sage wisdom for <laughs> world like type things. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember the word that I'm looking for, uh, but uh, but yeah, no, I Harin is obnoxious, but I do like Shalon. Uh, she has of all the sea folk, she has a lack of self assurance that is just refreshing. Because refreshing all the other from the folk, folk. Are I see so what you did there. High and mighty, they're so just, otherwise. Ugh. <laughs> and and they they don't have cause to be. They're not in their prime environment. They're they're not in positions of power, but yet they act like they are. And Talon is, yes. is not. And yeah. so I'd know, say Talon is another one. So Talon is also a lot like. A lot like that. She has a lot of self-awareness. She she's willing to abase herself in front of Nynaeve for oh, possible yeah, yeah. acceptance into the White Tower. Like that's pretty yeah. cool. Knowing what she's capable yeah, but of. She's, too. Like she's an apprentice, though. You know, she's I she's not one of these wind yeah. finders or wave But she's an apprentice for a pretty high position. Yes. So. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I I did like Talon. Um, I I wish we had like a more satisfying conclusion for her character, but we can get into that more. You know, in the later books. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, do you have any other miscellaneous Yep, points? yep. Just uh, two more. Oh, three more. Oh, sorry, four more. Um, there's such an awesome <laughs> moment for Olivia as the cleansing starts. Like, she's the only one oh, apparently yeah. not linked to anyone else. Yeah. So that we have, like, so this is what we have. We have Maurice linked with Narishma and Kalandor, and I think Elza was in on that and circle Elza. as well. And Elza, yep. Uh, and, you know, as the, all these others are forming up, they're linking, they're whipping out their Angrial, but Olivia... Just embraces the source and strolls away to the north. No shit's given. Yeah. That was pretty cool. That was pretty cool, and that was pretty yep. badass. And I was totally, totally for it when I came to that. That was awesome. And I also thought it was pretty badass to see Narishma with Kalindor at the beginning of this sequence. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote, why am I psyched about this now? Like, I think maybe it's because Rand has the Shoyden Cal in hand, so it's it's probably fine. Even though I totally trusted Narishma. Like, Narishma, listen to me. Narishma, at this point... Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also know that Kalandor is, is also, you know, not to be trusted. It's a little sketchy. So I guess maybe that's why I'm not, I'm not, before I wasn't as cool. In Path of Daggers, I made a very clear point of this. I was a little skeptical about Narishma wielding Kalandor. But in this sequence, I was so on board. I was so well, ready to see. linked with two women, which is right, what we so know is what makes it safe that, to use. Okay, yeah, that's true. I hadn't considered that, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that led me to my next thought now. Wouldn't it be nice if we also had power ratings for Angrial and Sa Angrial? 
Yes. And if we would. did, what would like our, what would our units be? Would they be like measured in moirains? Would they be measured in daigions as like a small base unit, or even like oh, more, more gazes as you want to go as small and accurate an as possible? Is it argument and debate like in like the really hardcore theory forums like on what? Oh, that's cool. I haven't seen this. Stuff, like the amount of debate that has gone on over the last twenty years about like how to. Like, if you're trying to quantify the amount of power that these, or rank, you know, power users, what is an Angreal or a Sangreal, and how does it interact with that power right. scale? Like, is it a multiplier? Is it a geometric? Like, is it exponential? Yeah. Is it, like, linear like, or exponential? You know, exactly. A rate and, of accelerated returns. What's the dividing line between Angreal and Sangreal? Yeah, and like, and that was a big, that was a really, really big uh, debate that raged for yeah. a while. I remember like people arguing that it was like Angreal, um, like just they had like some, I don't remember exact quotes or anything, but they had some textual evidence that indicated that possibly Angreal were something that uh, gave you like a, just like a direct, um, concrete amount added on, you know. Whereas, okay. like, Sangreal were multipliers, where, like, Moirin okay. wielding the, uh... The, 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 like the bracelet? Like, wielding would not, like, like you'd have Moirin at, like, X level. And yes. Egwene at Y level. The amount of boost Moirin would get from using Vora Sangreal would be less than the amount of boost Egwene got from it. Because, because it multiplies it on top of base, her. Yeah. It's like Super Saiyan. Strength. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> That's one of the nerdiest good things I've ever said in my life. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, but, and, but we just, like, we don't really know. We yeah. do not know. And so... It's fun uh, to talk about, though. It's fun to discuss and think about. It is, yeah. So, like, the, the idea of, like, you know, Rand using Kalendor versus Narishma using Kalendor, you know, maybe he's not getting quite as much of this, like, huge power boost that Rand got. And that's not even discussing. Like, this, the strength of the channelers that went into creating the Sangreal or Angreal in the first place. Of mm. course, I think it's actually easier to say that stronger channelers creating a Sangreal would be able to accomplish it with fewer individuals than weaker channelers. Well, and that was another theory, is that, like... Uh, That's awesome, though. What, uh, what makes an Angreal or a Sangreal, like, strong at various points is how strong was the Aes Sedai in the seed. Yeah. Like, is it is it a, a direct correlation, like, one-to-one -to, -one to the strength of the Aes Sedai who made it? Because we know when you make an Aes Sedai, you're, like, drained of the power. Mm -hmm. And, and they, won't be able to, they won't be able to channel for weeks afterwards, yeah. yeah. That's what Rand so, warns Egwene about on A Memory of Light. As he gives right. her the seed. Yeah. Um, so maybe we did get into some like hardcore lore there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we did. Um, I only have one more miscellaneous thought, and then we have two questions from listeners. Okay. Uh, my last thought is, R.I.P. Rip Evan Hopwell went down with honor. Dude. My I man. Raise a glass, he, man. He, yeah, I will. I just finished he, the beer, so I guess I'll drink some water in honor of Eben Hopwell. But I was going to bring up Eben Hopwell in my closing yeah, thoughts. So he yeah, couldn't. That, he couldn't fight back with the one power, so he did the only thing he could against the woman that was channeling Sidine, and drew yep. his sword and died in defense. Remember of his, his name. I said, die. Eben Hopwell this is for you, my man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, refreshing. Yeah, he, Eben, Eben was always one of my favorite Ashaman, and uh, he went out like such a boss. Mm. So. Yeah. 
Um, so our, our listener questions are two in number. The first of which is from Brandon Stetter. He asks, what are your thoughts on what we saw of Farmatting? Do you think the city should have played a bigger role in the series than we saw? Ooh. So, it is a really interesting uh, city, like, geopolitically and magically, because it's... It can so easily occupy its own space independent of everything, and it also presents unique problems for our main characters. I don't think, though, that it needed to be used more. Uh, I think we got, like, like, it would have felt like too much of a recurring trope if it was used again and again and again as, like, oh, this, like, channeling block. It was used twice. It's already used in the setting. in different ways. Yeah. You know, we we got to see it force Rand to like use the sword a bit again, you know, and and uh bring him down to a more normal level and force him to deal with issues from a, a human perspective rather than a semi godlike perspective. And then we see it again, you know, with the Borderlander army in the next few books about how they shelter within the Guardian and and force Rand uh, you know, toward that precipice of using the true power. Uh, that said, I do think it would have been fun if there had been some way, I mean, I, I can't think of a good logistic way, uh, but if we had seen all of the characters, like the Two Rivers Five, as still, like, young, naive, wide-eyed adventurers going to farmatting early in the series... Like that could have been really, fun, but but See, I don't know if like there would have been any possible satisfying narrative purpose for that. So yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up though, and I'll tell you why. Because um, I wanted to say for for my answer for this for this question, I want to say I honestly I honestly think leaving it mysterious as it was, like with the bare few details that we got about the guardians, it kind of lends a whole lot more to this air of mystery that surrounds the breaking of the world. Um, I'm fine with it being left as it is in the narrative, but as an aside, I would also suggest that this is an awesome source of material for, like, fan fiction or spin-off. Like, there's so much fertile ground here, and I want to just say, go nuts, everybody. Far matting is ripe for the plucking. Like, the, the yeah. Guardian is fascinating. The fact that it can not only detect both Sidar and Sidine, but can also triangulate their position and also distinguish between one and another based on color. Like, oh, it's just... It's so cool. It's just like... it, Like, the world-building aspect in that alone is just breathtaking. Well, so you kind of hit on where I was going to go next with oh, that. Yeah? And that is... Uh, we know a couple of... I said I from farm adding... And yeah, we do. This is something Languages. that, like, if you want to go and do like a spin-off, what I think would be one of the most compelling. Oh, that's awesome. If you wanted to, I'm to such like, a fanboy. Like a direct spin-off, like origin story. Yep. Varen or Cadswain, like, what Cadswain. is it like so being much. a girl who grows up in farmatting who can channel? How do you even find out that you can channel? Oh, is that's it like so cool. You you walk outside the, you know, the span of the Guardian for the first time when you're like 16, and suddenly you get like. This is like crazy stuff. Or perhaps you get sick. Like, like how? Like how does that happen? Or you perhaps know? she, like a mysterious figure, woman, wanders through the, through like through the town, and she feels an unexplained kinship towards this woman. And it turns out this woman has the seed of channeling planted in her, and she can feel it. 
Like, but we don't even know. Is that something you can sense in aesthetic? I would hope so. <laughs> like, like that, just that connection between souls. Like, regardless of the fact that, I don't know. I don't know. Then again, they can't even feel the source. They can't even feel the ability to channel inside mm -hmm. the guardian inside aesthetic. That's actually interesting. Maybe not. I'm starting yeah. to lean towards not actually. Um, our second question though is from Christian Hayden, who's asked questions before. What's up, Christian? Um, he asks, "What about the inconsistency in Grady and Neal's ability to channel gateways?" I know as the whole Philo Capture storyline can be rough, uh, but this always kind of bothered me. Might be more for a later book, not sure. It seems weird regardless of how tired they are. I know partly they're impacted by their location and its relative nearness to Ebudar. Also, is this when they begin to tie off the gateways as they get more and more taxed by their efforts? Gateways won't stay open forever, do they? You certainly never see a permanent gateway. They unravel over time, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you tie off the gateway, they do, um, we see it with Avienda when Rand and her go to Shachan. I wonder if Andrels would last longer. He, yeah, uh, mm. where Rand, like, ties off the block to hold the gateway open, and the gateway, like, closes the block. Um, and we also see it, like, later on in, in, as the books go, where you can tie off a gateway, but it will eventually close. Um, I will say the... At, at least at this point in the series, I don't have an issue like in Winter's Heart with with Grady and Neald's gateways. That is something we can talk about more in like uh, Crossroads of Twilight and into Knife of Dreams and Gathering Storm. Or I was thinking, the, I was thinking really. the same. Um, but but that is something that would be good to like keep in mind as we read through these next couple of books and sort of try to keep tabs on. Uh, on the wonkiness around Perrin's whole army there. And it is tough, as he says. The timeline with uh, the Perrin and Fayil story does sort of occupy its own sphere in these later books, and the only time we get like a really aligned um, moment, it, well, really there are two, uh, and they are when... Rand is cleansing Sidene, you know, you have the beacon uh, that we'll see early in Crosses of Twilight, and then when we have the bail screen. Yeah. You know, and so it, it's, it is tough to, like, to really justify a lot of the reasoning around that, especially because with the dream spike, we don't know when exactly that started up, you know. But, but that's something we can keep an eye on on those little details around the gateways over the next couple of books. Yeah, and if I were to offer a response, it would honestly just be a rewording of pretty much everything Drew just said. <laughs> so, uh, the, the last question is just a question that I have for you, Drew. It's going to be pretty simple, I imagine, for you to uh, address. Who is this shadowy figure that we see giving Luke slash Yusum his orders? Uh, I believe that was Arangar. Um, Arangar as Halima, or not as Halima, obviously, like, hold on. Yeah. Um, so in disguise, though, oh, I, Halima I is such a attention-seeking person, though. I do not remember why, well, we see Arangar masquerading as Samael later on. So. Oh, um, point, okay. I don't remember why, there was something, like, the last time I reread Winter's Heart, I specifically remember something jumping out at me and thinking like, oh, that's Arangar. But I don't remember what it was. I trust um, your instinct though. <laughs> I really do. 
uh, for our listeners, if if you have any insight on this, uh, you know, comments on uh, our Facebook page when this goes live. Um, I'm sure we'll get a comment to see what you all think, and I'll try to I'll try to do a little research and and figure out why that memory is sticking with me that it was Arangar. Cool, cool. So yeah. Um, Are you ready to go into closing thoughts before we start the final draft? Uh, well, we have to do our three favorite scenes. <gasps> For those who haven't guessed it already by my gasp of overly dramatized surprise, I totally forgot that we were going to do three favorite <laughs> scenes, so I'm going to have to wing it here. Sorry off, dude. Okay, so my third favorite scene is when Elaine wakes up the morning after oh, and the lily sorry, is on the pillow. A lily in winter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I just... For whatever reason, like I love that scene. I talked about it back in Shadow Rising with Rand and Elaine, and I love this scene, like just so great. Uh, dude, yeah, yeah. I I wish that Rand and Elaine had more opportunity for their relationship to like really bloom on the page. But uh, my second favorite scene, I mean, it it has to be. The daughter of Nine Moons is my wife, you know. That uh, that that whole sequence of events around the escape from Ebudar and and the escape from the Terrasen Palace is just so bonkers and so much fun. And then, of course, the cleansing. It, like, there's just no competition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, fair enough. I did think of three while I was going through. A couple of them might be obvious. Um, but one I think might uh, kind of been gone under the radar. We'll see. Mm. My um, my first is the cleansing, as you just mentioned. Like the clean. You know what? Actually, I'm going to save most of my thoughts for the cleansing for a couple minutes in the future as I'm uh, wrapping up with my closing thoughts here. Uh, okay. But the cleansing is third. Second, Blue Carp Street. Blue Carp okay. Street is awesome. Um, like the whole parallel between Rand and Lan is how they're they're almost presented as equals here in in their abilities. It's just, it's just so surreal. I I want to double down on that. Endlessly cool to read. Definitely in my huge thick paperback that's almost destroyed from my continuous reading of Winter's Heart, the thickest red part and the darkest in the line of the pages because I've gone over it so many times. <laughs> and my favorite scene I think in this entire book might be the scene where Elaine and Avienda bond each other as first sisters. Oh, okay. That was such a cool scene in the ceremony and everything it meant for those two characters, everything it revealed about them to one another. It was just, ah, it was it was such a an intimate moment and I thought it like Jordan handled that perfectly. And it's oh, okay. and part of my admiration for his ability in that scene is how often I just I forget about it and when I when I get to it, it surprises me and delights me every single time. So Okay, that's yeah, yeah that's a good choice. It's a good choice. Thank you very much. Um yeah, so I, I just have a couple of closing thoughts. Go You've for already it. touched on Evan Hopwell, but I want to touch mm. on uh, Olivia a little more and oh. and just the general dynamics of these little duels around the cleansing um, I love that scene from Sindane's point of view where she uh, runs into Olivia and oh, it's like yes. she's like whoa whoa she's yeah. so powerful like, <laughs> hold up yeah she's like that is impossible it is impossible for somebody like you know and she's like oh she's she's got to have an auger owl or something you know yeah. and then and then she throws a fireball and it, and it unravels and she's like what the heck um 
And then Demandred, it's a similar thing with Demandred, where he runs into Flynn, and Flynn is so strong that it shocks Demandred. And Demandred's mm-hmm. one of the most powerful channelers ever, you know, like and then uh but my absolute favorite is Agonor going out like a punk. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Getting nuked by one of the Black Aja. And, the, and we're in her head, and she's like, oh, I can do this. It's fine. I'll be forgiven. It's just a dark friend. <laughs> yeah. And then she kills one of the Forsaken. <laughs> and, and, and something that I actually forgot to write down, but occurred to me while I was listening to the audiobook for this portion, how surreal must it be for, for Arangar slash Agonor? No, Arangar was Balthamel. What am I saying? Yeah. Agonor was Osangar. Uh, Osangar to be just watching his creations, these Trolloc and the Murdral just destroying the world and being what primarily the light is focused on trying to struggle against. Like, and he's just there in Rand's company, just like, oh yeah, okay, yes, my lord dragon, no, my lord dragon, until obviously he goes rogue (laughs) later, but I don't know, it's just, it's cool. For context, I think it's really cool that these are all, like, scientific creations from this man that Rand has no idea is masquerading as Osangar, as, sorry, sorry, Osengar masquerading as Corlin Dashiva. Yeah. That was just pretty cool. Um, yeah. as, as far as closing thoughts, um, sorry, were you done with your closing thoughts? Uh, my last, my last point is that just, like, I love this book. Uh, I think this book <laughs> is unfairly maligned in the fandom. Appreciate it, it. It is so great, and unfortunately, we are done with it now, and we have to go back to Crossroads of Twilight, where we have to read Eggween. Hmm. Rip. But but and this is part of where I'm going with, with, with my closing thoughts here. The, you know, and I wanted to really, really briefly discuss the cleansing once again. The cleansing is probably my, my second favorite sequence in the entirety of the Wheel of Time. Might not line up with what I said about my, my favorite scenes in this book, but you have to give a nod to the cleansing and its importance and its momentum and the way it changed the Wheel of Time. Um, you know, like, <clears throat> first being like the... <clears throat> Sorry, it's my second favorite sequence in the entirety of the Wheel of Time. I, I mentioned that already. The first, I think, is probably the, the last battle sequence, even though, okay, cheap answer, I get it. But everything <laughs> about this cleansing scene, <clears throat> pardon me, from the way it starts, like with Rand just almost casually whipping out the access keys and announcing he's going to up and cleanse Sidene of the taint, you know, to so the preparations at Shatter Logoth, the, the rapidly switching viewpoints across a multitude of different threads, they're all coming together in this single point in the series as Rand and Nynaeve, they're, they're working literal wonders with the power of creation. Like, this is as Wheel of Time as it gets. Like, these are the moments that are defined, and, and they did define a whole generation of epic fantasy, and they shaped the future of it too. So, like, as I'm making notes for this podcast, like, these are the moments that are kind of difficult to form absolute opinions on because you want to do it justice but all i can really say is that like this is robert jordan at his best aside perhaps from dumai's wells and maybe that sequence in the shadow rising uh in the tyrong real <laughs> but like, i just i can't think of beside those possible two exceptions of another peak that jordan hit during his like his professional career as awesome as this was like what a stellar ending it was phenomenal in every sense of the word yeah, I mean, I would, I would argue the Shanshim campaign and Path of Daggers, but I don't uh, know if it's it's quite stacks but, up. But it's it, damn good. But. You you have a very good point here. Like what what the cleansing, what this chapter with the Choidan call means, not just to this book, but to the series of the Wheel of Time and the genre of epic fantasy. The genre itself, as a whole, like this is something. This is a level of like epic that we you know rarely got to see. 
before Robert Jordan came along and and you know, I'm glad to see what this, like, it inspired that's into entertaining us nowadays and authors like yeah. Brandon Sanderson and this kind of spectacle. Yeah. I just yeah, Steven Erickson and like you know Terry Terry Goodkind, you know the, these like big I'm glad. Oh, the cool. big fat fantasies the 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 scale of things has gotten so big and it's because of the success and the the power of the wheel of time so agreed 100% i wish i had more beer to drink too but i'm empty now but i'm ready to talk about the beer that i brought on you want to get into the final draft let's do it okay i'll start us off um, i brought to the table today a german black lager from napanee beer company mm. and i'll be honest i'm having trouble distinguishing this from any like what my idea of a good porter or stout may be, save that this is perhaps um, a, a little bit on the sweeter side, not quite as roasty or bitter. Uh, it, it, obviously, it's still got the chocolate, it's still got the coffee notes, um, and this is actually an homage to that Blue Carp Street sequence that I've been glowing about all episode. Um, as a one-fingered salute to Manel Rochaid, Rayfar Kisman, <laughs> you know, Peril Torval, and to an extent, Corlin Dashiva. This brew is called Blacklist. Nice. Nice. As you can see. And oh, it was delicious. Like it. it was delicious. What'd you bring? Oh, I like it. My man. So I I didn't have the best uh, options for this one. I just I couldn't okay. find something that, that was really perfect, but I had a couple of okay ones. And I ended up going with uh, with this guy. This is an India Pale Ale from Anchorage Brewing Company in Anchorage. Alaska. We've had them before. We have. Uh, and their Anchorage is very good. They're uh, one of the, the better breweries in America. Awesome. Um, this this particular IPA is uh, pretty bright and fruity. I get a lot of like, you know, mango, uh, pineapple notes from it. it it's got that, that what is become like a really modern hop profile it's not that like super piney bitter west coast ipa uh kind of deal that got popularized a decade ago uh but but it is it is very tasty um you know i i'm not the biggest ipa fan in the world i'll, I'll drink them every once in a while but this is one that if i see it again i will probably buy it because it's, oh. it's that good uh but it is called patterns patterns yeah. Okay, I can see the tie-in. Yeah. I appreciate so it. So it's it's not perfect, but it is Wheel of Time themed, and you know. Uh, yeah. But but I promise I'll I'll make up for this lackluster entry. <laughs> I have I have several lined up for the coming books that are gonna be really damn good. Good good. So, I can't wait to yeah. see them. Uh, I, I I can't wait to react to them. Once again, I have a beer that I'm gonna try to trade for that. Uh, I wish everybody oh, could see this oh, mischievous look that. in your eye as you say this. Mm. There was I, will, a I will say this: like the book, or the book, the beer that I want to trade for for uh, uh, for Towers of Midnight, one of the Towers of Midnight episodes. Uh, it's like one of the highest rated stouts in the world. Like, it, like on the secondary market, this thing goes for like hundreds of dollars. Holy so I'm gonna, geez. I'm gonna have to to dig deep in my cellar and see if I can get some bottles to like I'll have to trade multiple bottles of beer to to swing this. <laughs> nice. But, Very uh, nice. But if I can do it I'll I'll bring it on uh, cuz that would be a really special <laughs> one. 
Right on. Yeah. So, uh, that said, uh, this has been episode 53, right? I believe it is 53, yeah. Oh my Nailed gosh, it. I'm, I'm like losing track. So like you got, got 50, it. and then suddenly I, uh, you know, all the numbers just 51 would be Path Daggers 2, 52 would be Winner's Heart Part 1, and 53 would be Winner's Heart Part 2. I believe that's the case. I think <laughs> how, that's how we're doing it. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're listening to this and there's a different number on the episode, we're wrong, oh well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it be a first time. But, uh, but yeah, next up, we're going to be going back to Star Wars. Uh, Lauren and I are going to be finishing up the main Wraith Squadron sequence with Solo Command. Uh, so yeah, check that out if you're into Star Wars Expanded Universe stuff. And if you're not, maybe go, uh, go check out the Wraith Squadron books. They're really good. Uh, as always, you know, consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, we got a bunch of good benefits there. You can get access to our original short fiction and uh, small episodes covering general fantasy topics. Or yeah, I'm up for this other, month, aren't I? Uh, other short fiction. Yeah, uh, by the time you're listening to this, there should be a, a new uh, bit of fiction from Rob on there. Mm. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah. So check us out there. All that money goes straight toward uh, Pat and Danny, who you know do a lot of the behind-the-scenes work to make this this podcast run and, and you know allow us to keep going after 50 episodes. <laughs> but as always, I am your host Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host Rob Santos. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, bye, everybody.